Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. everyone and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. This week, Mark and I are here with our special guest, David Morrison from Wine Gourd. So uh, he has a blog that I personally have been reading for years. We've been loving doing some interviews with writers in the wine world and we are very excited to have David on the show today. David, how are you? Thank you. I'm fine. Um, it's actually the middle of the night here sort of thing, but I'm still wide awake and, and working where are away. You joining us? Where are you joining us from? At the moment, I'm in Sweden. My, my wife is Swedish, so at the moment I'm in Sweden. And you don't sound Swedish. Oh, I don't because I spent the first 45 years in Australia. There we go. <laughs> I didn't even say hi to you, Mark. How you doing? Yeah, hi, Kim. I want to welcome David to the show. Always, like you said, a, a longtime reader of David's work, and I thought it would be interesting for our listeners to get to know him a little bit. So first, David, can you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got into this wine blog? Well, um, thanks for inviting me in for a chat. I'm quite happy to talk about myself. Actually, I, I'm a biological scientist. I mean, I've spent most of my time, my professional life in universities. I'm teaching biology and researching and things. And I actually used to run a blog as part of the work I was doing for that because we were promoting a new data analysis technique in evolutionary biology. And when I sort of retired from that, I was wondering what to do with myself. And I thought well, maybe I should continue with a sort of a, a blog of some sort. And I've always been interested in wine. And it just it suddenly occurred to me that maybe looking at data in the wine industry, sort of in the broad sense, um, most of the blogs are often about wine and things like that, or complaining about government regulations and that sort of thing. I thought it might be interesting to, to look a bit more at the information in the wine industry and see what sort of patterns you can find. And that was it, really. There's nothing particularly special about it. What, what happens, I write one post a week, and whatever happens in that post is what I found during the previous week, usually. I don't usually get ahead of myself or anything. But, I mean, that's about it, really. It's just a retirement activity that gives me something to do one day a week. Kim and I are always saying there's so much data in the wine world, and we always tell the listeners there's always good stuff, there's always bad stuff. How do you separate the real data versus the marketing place data? And do you just report all that you see of both sides, or do you have specific sites you get your data from? Um, the data can come from anywhere, although some places are better than others. I mean, reports come out and things like that. Separating the stuff out is usually very straightforward because you read the text that goes with it. And it's usually very obvious when these people are promoting something. They write in a particular manner. And as a scientist, that doesn't work with me. So as soon as I see something like that, I say, okay, well, I don't know if I trust this data or these data, rather. Whereas other stuff, when they're actually quoting data and giving you the source of the information and things like that, then I'll always have a look at it. I mean, sometimes it's not very interesting. And sometimes you think, well, you know, this is actually really quite worth looking at. And sometimes it's a lot of work. 
trying to extract the interesting stuff. And sometimes it's very, very easy. Just give it to you. But my stuff is, you know, I like, for example, drawing graphs and things like that. I mean, drawing a picture of the data, which the original is often not in. It's a table of some sort with a bunch of numbers. And I, I don't know about anybody else, but looking at numbers takes me a long time to work out what the pattern is. Whereas if I look at a picture of it, it's much quicker and much easier. I think that's one of the standout things about your blog. Not only is the content different because, as you said before, there aren't a lot of blogs or websites or, or what have you out there that take this look at data and putting it together and then sort of making extrapolations from that. You're not writing descriptions of wines, things like that. You know, you're doing this whole different thing. And I think one of the things that I most enjoy about it is those graphs and the drawings and those representations of what you have been researching and what you've come across, because it really does make it much more, I feel like, way for us the consumer to kind of digest the information and make it all kind of make sense to us. Well, thank you for saying that because, I mean, that that's my objective. So it's nice to know there's at least one person who <laughs> is getting what I'm doing. But, I mean, the, the blog posts vary very much in the number of readers there are. They vary from like 200 people to 20,000. So clearly there's a lot of variation in what people mm. find interesting or worth um, spending their time on. I just do it for my own interest, so it doesn't worry me whether it's 200 or 20,000. And you cover so many different subjects, which, like Kim was saying, is so interesting. Can you just talk to us about wine and health, David? A lot of talk and trending lately on healthiness of wine. What has data shown you as far as wine and health worldwide, such as sulfites, et cetera? Uh, the stuff you find, the, the polite word to say is that the results are very variable. Most of the commentary you actually read and the, the things people are presenting do seem to come from a particular perspective. Like the common thing to say these days is that wine is now seen as being as bad for you as smoking was when you know I was younger. I mean, my parents always smoked. But then people started talking about lung cancer and all these other things, and people just gave up on it. Now, of course, you're not supposed to smoke near another person if they don't want you to be smoking. It's um, publicly unacceptable now. And there's obviously a lot of pressure to make wine the same way. But as far as health is concerned, then obviously it varies in the sense that if you have one glass of wine a day, there doesn't seem to be any very good evidence that that does very much against your health, for example. And obviously, like the current blog post is about wine and happiness. I mean, there's mental health as well as physical health. And if it's helping you unwind at the end of a stressful day, then a glass of wine is probably doing you more good than harm. But on the other hand, there are clearly people out there who are addicted to alcohol and are having a very hard time as a result. And those people, their health is pretty bad as far as you can see from the data. But as a scientist, it's very hard to do an experiment on this. All you can do is collate data and hope that you get some information out of it. To do an experiment on it, you'd have to get, force some people to have wine and take wine away from other people and things like that, the sort of things you do in a science laboratory. And I just don't think you can do that. It's not socially acceptable to behave like that. We can dream up the experiments, but we could never do them. I think that's the bottom line for me. Is your science background kind of what made you go this path for a blog? I know you said you always liked wine, but it seems like there's this sort of natural inclination, I think, to look at all this data 
And then if you pass have developed these programs and tests and and other things, it, it does seem like it's a, a kind of a natural uh, next step for you. Uh, my background in science is, is biology and specifically plant biology is what uh-huh. I started off in. But I got very interested in data analysis because biologists are often not very good at mathematics. They didn't become that biologists because they were good at that. So I saw that once again, there was a niche for me there in helping them with that sort of thing. So I think it was just naturally taking that same perspective, but this time it was wine rather than plant biology. David, I hope you don't mind. A lot of my questions are based on, I I had a million questions for you, but I took a lot of it from a lot of the blogs you wrote and I had to kind of get feedback on. One of the things I wanted to ask you, and Tim and I just did a show on biodynamics. Has data Mm -hmm. shown you about biodynamics in organic wine trends? Have you seen anything showing that that this is a trend? I don't know so much about the data. It's it's more something people talk about a lot. And sometimes I'm not really quite sure if they're all talking about the same thing. It's almost a bit like it's trendy to claim that you're interested in this sort of thing and want to get involved in it. But in terms of actual data showing that this has any great benefit for the wine itself, for example, I don't see very much. But The principles behind it should be, from my perspective, better for the environment and things like that. Whether we can successfully implement it is another matter entirely, of course. Good intentions don't necessarily turn out right, at least not in my life anyway. You talked about health. You talked about the biodynamics. Also, I wanted to ask you, David, you wrote a lot of blogs about wine reviews and wine scores. What do you think about the data that shows? Do people uh, believe these scores or, or buy based on these scores? Are they scientifically valid for purchasing that type of information? What what have you seen from from reviews and scores? Um, For my own perspective here when I choose wines, there are some sites here in Sweden that talk about the new releases of wines and some of them do produce scores and I do look at those scores. I'm not interested so much in the score. I'm sort of interested in, you know, is this a high score for a cheap price? Because then that seems like value for money and the wine might be worth trying. But scores themselves seem to vary so much between the reviewers, I mean, the people themselves, without any sort of feeling for how this particular wine reviewer goes about producing a score, whether it's a number or whether it's just ABC sort of stuff. I don't think scores are that useful in that sense. The person is telling you that they liked this wine from some perspective. And if you find somebody whose taste in wine is the same as yours, then that often can be very good advice. But I wouldn't take a score as meaning something in any absolute sense. I mean, in science, you go and count something, then you assume the person can count properly. But when you've got to put a score on something as subjective as tasting wine, you do sort of have to wonder whether this is the best way of communicating the ideas about the wine. To me, the text that comes with it is certainly just as important as as any number that you could actually put um, on a wine review. I'm glad you said that because Tim and I promote that all the time to our listeners. Go on the description, build up your profile type of thing and learn what you like. As I said, also learn if there are reviewers who have similar tastes to yourself because that will mean a lot more to you personally. I have two I tend to look at just when new things are released, just to see what they've both said. And if they agree, then I might follow up on it. If they disagree, then I'm just as likely to move on and try something else. We talk about that with importers. Like if you've found an importer, you've had more than just a couple bottles that 
you turn the bottle around and you see who brought it in and you like it, you're like, okay, maybe there's something about the profile of wines that this importer brings into the country that I'm fond of <laughs> and kind of experiment on it that way. But that's a little bit harder for the public to do. You can mind who all the importers are. So I think your method is probably a little bit yeah. more accessible for the general wine drinking public. Yeah. I mean, back in Australia, when I was younger and first learning about wine, there was a liquor store down the road that had free tastings on Thursday evenings, which was late night shopping back in those days. And we started turning up to those. And then the proprietor realized there were a group of us who were interested. So they, he started holding special tastings on weekends and things like that that we paid to go and try wines. So to me, that type of thing is just as valuable as, as reading a review. You actually mm -hmm. get to try it and then decide whether you'd like to buy some. That is a big part of the marketing of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Certainly around here and probably where you are yeah. too. Well, that proprietor actually eventually bought a vineyard and started getting wines contract made ah. and started releasing his own wines. And the last time I looked, the only two countries in the world other than Australia, which is where all this happened, where the wine is available is Malaysia and Sweden. So <laughs> I, I can still buy his wine now. Lucky you. <laughs> going online and ordering a few boxes sent to my house. Yeah, that's cool. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. Today, we have a special guest, David Morrison. He is from The Wine Gourd. You can see his blog on winegourd.blogspot.com. If you want more information about Kim, you can go to her website at commonwealthwineschool.com. If you want more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and our past episodes are on SoundCloud and iTunes. Welcome back. We're here talking the wine world with David Morrison and his blog and asking him a lot of questions about data he sees and things he writes about. And to David, one of the things I wanted to ask you is Kim and I are big on promoting small wineries in the world. In the United States, we have the wine wall and we try to teach people 90% of what you see is these big, huge corporations. Is that just a US thing that these companies dominate the wine shelf space or is that something that's worldwide? Is it like 90% of the shelf space in Sweden also these big guys, or is it different? Well, for, just to take Sweden as an example, the answer is pretty much yes, you do expect. But partly that is because so many of these companies have now become conglomerates. I mean, you could go and buy five different wines and then discover they're all actually owned by the same company. They've just bought up smaller companies themselves. Mm -hmm. So yes, in Australia, also it was like that pretty much. I mean, the bigger companies tended to get bigger. And certainly if you were going for the lower end of the, the monetary spe spectrum, then it was always dominated by the big companies. I mean, Australia is the place that originally championed the wine cask, as we called it in Australia, the bag-in-box stuff, where the big companies would just sell you a cardboard box full of wine rather than pulling a bottle off a shelf. My own personal interest is also in the smaller wineries. I mean, they're much more likely to do something interesting. It's very hard to do interesting things and then try and sell it to a million people. Um, you've got to do it on a much smaller scale. And as somebody who's interested in wine, that, of course, is of interest itself. We talk a lot about the consistency of those some of those larger brands and how sometimes it's almost more of a recipe than it is a uh, an agricultural product that, that changes from vintage to vintage. And that's, I think, some, one of the other things that like the numbers come into play when you're looking at 
how a wine is made and what are the percentages of either a grape variety or the the changes that have to be made to the juice itself or to the wine itself in order to get that consistent product? Yeah, I mean, I would say consistency is their number one criteria, but also, of course, being consistent at a certain price point. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the issue to me. They're aiming at a price point, not at a quality of wine. And that is fine if you just want alcohol. But if you actually want some interesting taste, then you can't really go that route. It just doesn't work, at least not in my experience of tasting wines. David, let's talk with our listeners here about wine consumption. Are you seeing globally wine consumption is down? We're hearing a lot about the climate and all these areas getting impacted with production. Are you seeing things with consumption, people not as interested in wine or consuming as much wine? It's certainly all the, all the data that is currently being reported is saying volume is down, but quality is probably up in terms of interest in, in the marketplace. Mm. And therefore, I mean, there's an article I read today, is that um, the biggest company up in Washington state there is going to reduce its production by 40% and therefore 10,000 acres of vineyard must disappear because they're not going to buy the grapes anymore. Yeah, Saint things Michelle. like that. Is that Chateau their argument, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the one. I sometimes miss some of these names because I'm not familiar <laughs> with them here, either in Australia or Sweden for that matter. But I mean, it's that type of thing that, you know, that's what's being reported. And, and they're quoting numbers and they're being very clear about what it is that has to happen, that there is has been for several years oversupply and it's not economic for them to produce more wine under in that marketplace. So I tend not to write about that too much because it gets a bit depressing, really. Mm. If you're writing a wine book, writing about the demise of the wine industry doesn't sound like the way to go, really. I'll have to find a different blog. We don't like to be doom and gloom when it comes to wine either. <laughs> well, not if you're trying to sell it in a shop, you know. Well, there's that too. Or teach about it, which is what, what well, I do on yeah. my side of the business. Yes, I noticed when I first read up on the, the store that you were promoting education as a big thing, which is you know a good idea, I think. Yeah. It's one of the things that I feel like, especially for the, the retail segment of our market, is that really need to differentiate yourself. And one of the ways that Mark does that is uh, is through education at, at his store. Yeah. Kind of jumping off of that, what's been one of the more surprising things that you have learned by looking at some of the data research that you've done? Has anything like jumped out at you recently that, that surprised you? Not that I immediately think of. Sometimes you think you're hoping there might be something here, so you look at it and it, it's not quite as clear as you are hoping it would be and things mm -hmm. like that. It's probably, I, to me, just the, this idea that people are still blaming the pandemic and all that sort of stuff. But it seems to me that it, it's probably bigger than that. But I think people misunderstood the sort of declines in consumption and things like that. They originally attributed it to less social outings and things like that because we all had to isolate from each mm -hmm. other to have the infection spread and that that has just created a new social environment but i think when you actually look at it it's possibly more than that there has been a latent trend there for a while and i've spent a bit of time trying to think about how to show that you know in some way in the blog but i haven't really come across anything yet i actually asked the same exact kind of question i was going to ask you about if it was anything that surprised you but i, I also added on my note i wanted to ask you if anything has shocked you on a data that you oh. saw that you had to 
research a little bit more because you couldn't believe what you were seeing. Have you ever had that happen? Not when writing the wine blog. In science, yes, but not in the wine industry. Maybe I've just become a cynical old man or something and nothing surprises or shocks me anymore. <laughs> That's interesting because Kim and I always go back and forth that we see an article and we're like, this is wrong. Like, this can't be true. <laughs> like, I know we do that all right? the time. And, yeah. it, and it usually ends up being some marketing material from somebody. I'm like, aha, that's why. <laughs> now, I've, yeah. I've noticed a lot of comments of that type, not just in the wine industry, but elsewhere as well. My wife and I are buying a new car. And, you know, the guy said, look, they tell me that this will take a month for the car to come in, you know, in the colour you've chosen and things. And he said, don't believe a word of it. This will be at least two months for the company I work for to produce this car for you. And, you know, that sort of thing, I think, shocks me because it's his own company he's saying this about. But I think he's probably right. I think he knows what he's talking about. Well, you said earlier that you have instances where you can tell the difference between what someone's putting out as marketing. And I think a yes. lot of times Kim and I see those tricks and we kind of report that to our listeners that, you know, we saw this article, but keep in mind, it was promoted by the person who wants this issue promoted. So yep. are you seeing a lot more of that where people are putting out things in favor of promoting material, you know, and product? I wouldn't say I'm seeing more of it. It's just something I've always seen. That, and maybe once again, it's the science background because we couldn't write like that in science. You'd never get your public pub papers published. I mean, nothing. Right. Right. So we know not to write like that. So it does become very obvious to us when people in the commercial world are doing that. It stands out very much to us. So I don't think I'm seeing any more of it, but I certainly see it. And I see more of it than I want to. When in doubt, ask a scientist. Um, that's <laughs> what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I still know some. I still, Even though I'm retired, I still know some. <laughs> What's the story behind the name, David, of the blog? I don't know how easy it is to explain, but... In Swedish, wine and vine are the same word, vin. So you can't tell what the person's talking about, the grapes or the wine, without working out the context. But in Swedish, a farm is the word gård. It's not spelt the way the blog, it is in the blog. But a vin gård is therefore a vineyard. So I don't. I just thought to myself, just from the sound of it, why don't I take vin gård and make it wine gård, since vin and wine are the same word? And then because. There is such a thing as a wine gourd. And then I went and found a picture with an elderly man with a wine gourd and a younger woman and used that as the picture on the blog. But it was just that, trying to think of something different to what everybody else is doing. Not everybody can call their blog fermentation and that sort of stuff. There, <laughs> Right, right. It wasn't quite desperation, but I saw, when I thought of it, I thought, okay, I can stop thinking about this now. That'll work. And how long has it been since you've been you started it? Oh, you're asking an elderly man to think this eight years, seven, eight years. I know you have a good amount of articles on the blog, so. Yeah, I do one a week. I mean, regularly, if I'm going to be away on holidays, I write a couple of extra ones ahead of time so that they appear on time. So I've never actually missed any, irrespective of what's ever happening. Wow. And it, it was the same with my previous blog as well, the science one. I mean, people take you seriously if you're doing being regular um, is so what happens. As, as a scientist in the wine world, what's your thoughts on AI in the wine world? Are you, are you, you think that it's going to impact things like people who do blogs and reviews and how you think AI is going to scientifically impact the wine world? Well, first of all, I don't think you can avoid it. It is the way things are going. So it, the question is more, how do you make it work for you in whatever it is you're trying to do? I read an article today where someone was saying, you know, 
basically to winemakers and I mean small vineyards and things like that. saying well you're going to have to take the time to learn about this sort of stuff because this is what your customers are going to be expecting and therefore you you need to start putting a bit of effort into this and also it's not as hard as you think it is was the point of view of, of the article so its impact in that sense is that it's going to be a lot of what we get I don't like it personally I have no interest in it at all it started to come in when I was still a professional scientist and, and scientists were very wary of of it because you know we're, we're supposed to be intellectuals we don't need artificial intelligence we have our own native human intelligence and that's what we're being paid for i mean as professionals so in that sense i, I don't get into you know a lot of this modern stuff of that type i mean my wife's always on her mobile phone and things like that and my my mobile phone is an old flip top thing that does absolutely nothing except make phone calls and send smss that's how old I am. I thought you'd have like the latest technology, being a scientist. You'd... On the computers, I do. On the phone, I don't. I draw the line. I draw the line. I wanted to I ask you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, I don't want to sit there with my wife and both of us on phones, ignoring each other. <laughs> As can happen. Uh, it, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are these two people married? Yes, they're got their back to each other and they're on phones. And they're on their phones. I was going to ask you about the different types of sources that you get your data from, because looking through your blogs and what you have written, it seems sort of natural that a lot of what you are writing about is drawn from sales data or import, export data, that kind of thing. But I was curious about sort of other places where you get your information that would be things or ideas that the regular wine consumer can sort of latch onto and, and grab onto kind of those more I don't I don't want to say like popular data sources but I was just curious as to where else you got your yeah. your stuff if you use an expression like popular data sources then I would say there's not a lot mm-hmm. because there I mean there are other people who do a bit with data and things like that and they're doing the same sort of thing as I'm doing. You sort of try and go to the original unreadable source and extract the interesting stuff from it. A lot of, I mean, obviously I get drawn to a lot of this stuff because someone does write a comment. I mean, you go, is it Wine Industry Insights or something like that with its daily list of publications and things like that. I mean, I always look through it and see what whether they've got a link to something that sounds interesting to mm-hmm. me and things like that, um, those types of things. But I don't know that I have anything really to recommend to you know the general wine buying public as something that would help them. It's uh, more a matter of finding you know a wine communicator who is writing the sorts of things or drawing your attention to the sorts of things that you find interesting. And it seems like that's what you're doing. So it was part of my inspiration for doing it. I said, well, there's not too many people doing this sort mm-hmm. of thing. So at least it would be useful for me. Yeah. To well, you put it together someone. in a, a nice, cohesive way. And I feel like you do a good job of getting that information across to just a casual reader so that we really do get what is important from the information that you're looking at. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that, because it, it's something that is at the front of my mind when I'm actually writing down the post itself, which is always the last thing I do. I sit down and say, okay, now imagine you're a perfectly ignorant person on this topic. What have you got to explain to them to have them understand it? And it usually takes several goes going through the draft to realize you've missed something really obvious that you had to say. But I go through them several times, so I give myself time to, to be able to do that. I'm glad if you're saying it's paying off. You have one of those blogs that when it pops up on my feed of wine things, I know it's going to take me 
couple of reads to kind of gather most of the information. I'm not as scientific as you. I need to read it a few times, unlike some of the other stuff that's out there. But you really surprised me in September. You wrote Snake Wine Blog. What was behind that? I just came across it and I thought, if I was reading about wine, this is one that would attract my attention. So I thought, well, you've got to do it. So I just did it just, just, I mean, almost like for the hell of it, just to do something slightly different to what I've always done. Yeah, it was really I remember seeing that one style. too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It wasn't one of the most popular posts, but it did okay. It's just interesting how it excited you to write about it. So I mean, that's a good thing. So I, I liked it. Yeah. it was... no, I try and be as broad as I possibly can. Is, is my approach to, to thinking about wine from the blog perspective. Is there any one specific wine topic or trend that you, when you see it, you are really excited about writing about it? Um, not really. I, I think I just go through you know, fads where, you know, you, you look at um, import-export for a while and then you look at consumption for a while and then you start thinking about the different generations. You know, they're emphasising that baby boomers were the big generation for wine, which is my generation, and that the modern people are not so interested. So you sort of have fads, I guess you might call them, of, of things that attract your attention. And then you think, well, I've looked at as much of that as I can. I'll move on to something else. Kind of sounds like what we do too, huh, Mark? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> look at the trends and there's a few things that, you know, are kind on, of on our radar that. for a while and then and then they go away and then we have something it, else. Not in no. the depth that David does at all. But. No. No, but I have a reason for doing it. You talked about production in the world. To me, every year I see France, Italy, they're Spain, they're always battling back and forth. I, do you think people are really interested in that data? Like we know, I mean, people who are in the wine world know these are the big producers, right? Does yeah. anybody really care if who's number one every year? I don't think the general public does. I mean, the, the interest they're trying to create in that just at the moment from the things I've seen is that some countries are going down while others are still going up in terms of production. But also they're showing more of an interest in the difference between sort of volume and value that, you know, that the countries that have the biggest volume are not the ones necessarily making the biggest amount of money out of it. Mm. Spain has been accused, of course, of producing massive amounts of very cheap wine, whereas a lot of the really expensive stuff comes out of France and so on. And a lot of the more interesting stuff comes out of Italy, for that matter. But I think the only time people really make anything interesting out of it is when you sort of write about some up-and-coming wine country, that something that is starting to promote itself as a source of different wine from everywhere else. And, of course, at the moment, all the confusion about what's going on in China. Is it China a wine-exporting country or is it not? Are they, is it a wine-consuming country? Are they going to yeah, start buying Australian wine again and things like that, you know? You're not hearing much about China lately, and it seems no. all the Australian news seems to be trending in the wrong direction. They seem to have too much wine, and in the yep. U.S. here, it seems like they lost interest a little bit yeah. in the Australian wine. Australia had the really big problem with that China had become sort of Australia's biggest market and then suddenly put these massive taxes on it, import duties. Mm. And therefore it plummeted and that had a huge effect on the Australian wine industry. They've now got to work out what to do with all this wine. Did that have to do with the, the energy, the coal situation? Was no, it, no. No. A very senior politician fairly early on in the pandemic said that China should be officially investigated because the pandemic started in China. 
And it was clearly just a political reaction to that, mm. saying, you know, we didn't create this and we don't want you looking into it. Yeah, um, I had heard something about yeah, it was selling politics. all the coal to China. And well, then the, re the rest of it sort of yeah. followed on from that. Yeah. That, um, you know, it, it, the follow-on effects in other industries and things like that. It wasn't just wine. Wine was the one they attacked first. And they're only just now talking about forgiving the Australians for this and doing something about adjusting matters so Australians can sell wine there again. The Australians are certain, the politicians and things are certainly sounding optimistic about what comes next, which they haven't done for years. So, David, as a scientist, talk about uh, climate change in the wine world. Are you, you concerned what you're seeing with climate and impacts in the wine world? It depends on what the concern is. I mean, clearly the impact is that the places are changing in terms of what wines they can make and make well, that you can probably still have the same range of wines that we have now. They're just not going to come from the places they have traditionally come from. And if the wine industry can adapt itself to or adjust itself to that situation, then it shouldn't have a huge impact globally, but will clearly have very large impact locally because the people will have to change the sort of wine they're making or stop making wine at all if they, they can't produce wine that's saleable. That seems to be the biggest issue, that um, the global industry doesn't change, but the locations do change. And that, of course, directly affects the people who are in the wine industry. And consumers having to change their buying habits and their whole yeah. understanding of what they're drinking and what they think they like or what they like and yeah. all of that. Well, yeah. That gives you something to educate them about. I yeah, guess. absolutely. Yeah, we've we've actually been thinking about this one for a while. It's like, well, we have new grape varieties that are being developed all the time. And how is that going to change what people are drinking? And how do we get people to understand that it's time to buy these wines, you know, <laughs> instead of just yes. sticking to what you have been drinking? Yes. If you like this sort of wine, you now have to buy it from over here rather than from <laughs> over there. Right. Or don't even think about a grape variety. But if you think you like this style, here we go. I can't pronounce half the names of the grape varieties. <laughs> David. Thank you for taking the time to talk to Kim and I and our listeners and uh, keep up the good work with the blog. I, I enjoy it. Kim enjoys it. And that's why we had to have you on the show and let the listeners know about you. So uh, thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing an interest in, in what I've been doing and things like that. I'm glad you have been enjoying yourself. And I hope I can keep providing things for you that you will continue <laughs> to find interest and your readers or customers and things will find interesting. Mark is a little bit of a data nut, so I, <laughs> I can see yeah. why he was excited to talk to you. Well, you know, the, the, I noticed the website does list that he has a bit of a background there before moving into wine sales and things. And your background, Mark? Well, I was in clinical yeah. engineering. So as, a, yeah, as an engineer, I yeah. used to uh, have some concerns about numbers and stuff, but uh, <laughs> no, I'm into drinking on, wine. On yeah. We move on, like David moved on to uh, oh, yeah. wine blogs, right? Oh, yeah. No, if you do the same thing for your whole life, I think you've probably got a pretty boring life. <laughs> true, true. So thank you, David. Appreciate it. Okay, then. Thank you for joining us today for The Wonderful World of Wine. We have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, with our special guest today, David Morrison from WineGourd blogspot.com. Go check out his blog. We are sponsored by Franklin Public Radio, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Bye, bye.